this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. I was planning to share um, on uh, the little book of Philemon, which is uh, Paul's shortest letter in, in the Bible uh, during the week, uh, I was, I was, that, was, that was my plan. And, um, and then on Friday evening, just after 7, I, I watched um, President Jacob Zuma's response to the Constitutional Court um, ruling that was made on uh, his Nkandla residence um, and on TV and, and just his, his response to it. I think it's fair to say most of South Africa was rather disappointed by, by the response. And I, and I thought, I can't, I have to sort of just use this opportunity to, to think about and to discuss um, how do we as Christians, or how do Christians, how should Christians relate to government? Because to be very honest with you, when I look at it, I, I usually see two extremes, both of which I think are not entirely biblical. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I think on the one hand, you know, as, as I was listening to this speech, I was thinking of, of scriptures like Proverbs 14 verse 34, which says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Uh, there are other scriptures, many scriptures in Proverbs that deal with government, and, and some of them says, you know, when, whenever, you know, bribery becomes part of the culture of a nation, you know, it, it, it leads to, to injustice and, and, and lots, of, lots of trouble and lots of pro- uh, problems. So, you know, how, and it's something that I've been thinking about for quite some time, for quite, quite a few uh, weeks and months, you know, how should we as Christians respond and relate to government? What's the right, the biblical way for us to relate to government? Um, so let, let's just, now, I, let me just first give a, a disclaimer. Um, obviously, in the short Time that I have to, at my disposal this morning, I cannot discuss everything that the Bible says about um, Christians and government. So please don't expect me to answer all the questions or to give a full, you know, complete um, picture. There will inevitably things, be things that I miss out. There will inevitably be things that I oversimplify just because, you know, I don't have enough time to deal with everything. But hopefully it will get us thinking. Um, and, and I really think that's the place to start. We need to think Biblically, reflect biblically on government and on how we as Christians should relate to government. And not give pat answers. Not give quick little um, you know, answers that we haven't really thought through and that we haven't really based on a deep reflection and meditation on Scripture. I think we have that responsibility uh, to do that. So, you know, one of the first Scriptures that people usually turn to when they think about, um, about church uh, and, and government is Romans 13, the first few verses. I'm sure most of you uh, know what it says, but let me, let me just read it to you. I think this is from the NIV. It's on the screen. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers uh, hold no terror for those 
who do right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities for two reasons. Not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why, we, uh, why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, pay, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honor, then honor. So that's usually the, the one scripture that most people go to when they think about Christians and government. Um, the problem is, what I find is often, we as Christians interpret that scripture very superficially and very one-sidedly. But I want to ask you, before I get started and share a few thoughts on, on those passages, I want to ask you just to turn to each other in groups of two or three and actually discuss what do you think, based amongst others on, on this passage and on other passages in relevant passages in the Bible, what is our responsibility as Christians towards government? And how should we relate to government? How should we act to government? What should our actions be towards government? And what should our attitudes be towards government? I'm just going to give you a minute or two to discuss that quickly. Okay, I hope your discussion in, in your, your groups got you thinking uh, about a few different things and maybe uh, someone else had some ideas that, that you hadn't thought about and that you hadn't considered. Um, but I'm just going to discuss it under, under a few headings. Firstly, what should our, according to these scriptures and other scriptures, what should our actions be towards government? Um, and I see two kinds of action towards government, priestly action and prophetic action. And what I often find is that Christians either choose one or the other or neglect both. Okay? Um, then secondly, um, what should... Um, you know, I'm just going to talk about God's, uh, basically God's sovereignty and, uh, you know, it's God's sovereign rule and, and human government and how those relate to each other. And, and does God appoint government? Does God... Uh, and, and I'm going to talk about the agents of government and I'm going to talk about... The approach to government. And then thirdly, uh, I want to talk about our attitude towards government. You know, should it be positive or negative? No, in general. So, let's, let's quickly discuss that. Firstly, our actions towards government. Now, it's clear from this text, and I think most people see this most obviously when they read the text, that there are certain rights that government has. It firstly says that Every soul must be subject to the governing authorities. In other words, the government has a right for people to submit to it and to obey it, to obey the laws of the land. It says that uh, government has the right to even use violence to enforce the, the law. It says that the governing authorities do not bear the sword in vain, which is just a, um, a figurative way of saying that if government has to enforce laws, if someone breaks the laws, then government actually has the right to use even violence to enforce the laws of the land, to enforce the rule of law. It says that government has the right to levy taxes and that we must pay taxes. In other words, government can draw support from the subjects who submit to it. So there are all kinds of 
rights that government has. And, and those, I think, are very obvious in this text. And, and the Bible affirms them on the one hand. Um, and often what I've found is people read this text and they focus only on the rights of government. And then, they, then it's a bit of a one-sided view. For instance, I, I once heard, because this is a couple of years ago, I actually read it in the, in the newspaper, there, there was an... an um, it was probably in the early 2000s or so. There was a, a ANC rally, I think, in Mpumalanga, and um, a pastor stood up and he and he read from because because there was a, a quite a bit of criticism uh, against the ANC government for something. I can't even remember for what it was, but there was some criticism. And this pastor stood up and he read from Romans 13 and he said, "You know, you have no right to criticize the government." Because it says you must be subject to the governing authorities, you must honor them. Oh, that's the other thing. You know, the government has a right to respect and honor. It says in verse 7, you know, pay honor and respect to, to those who misdue. So it says you have no right to criticize the government um, and, 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 and you have no right to, to say anything against government. In fact, you're cursed if you do and you're disobedient to God if you do. Um, and, and that's quite typical, I think, amongst Christians to interpret the scripture in that way. I, I've, that's not the first time I'd, I'd heard that and that's not the last time I'd heard that. And what I've found is often the people who interpret that passage only in that way, only highlight that aspect of the passage, are, are leaders who don't want to be held accountable. Whether it's in government, whether it's in business, whether it's in family, whether it's in the church. But that, the, the right of government and of the governing authorities is not the only thing that that passage highlights. At the same time, it also highlights the responsibility of the governing authorities. Firstly, it says that the governing authorities are appointed by God as his servants and as his agents. In other words, their first responsibility, they have certain rights because they're appointed by God, but the, the responsibility is then to represent God. If you're God's servant and God's agent, you have to accurately represent God. In other words, God expects all governing authorities to govern in the way that he would have governed, as his representatives. In other words, governing for God's glory. That means governing according to God's justice. Can you see that? That's implicit there. And in fact, it says it, I think it's in verse 4, it says, for, for the authorities are God's servant, and then it expands on, on the responsibilities for your good. Govern, because um, governing authorities are God's representatives, God's agents or God's servants, who are supposed to govern... A, uh, for God's glory, they are also therefore responsible to govern for the good of the people. That's implicit in the text. And usually when I, when I hear Christians talk about this text, I, I, don't hear, I hear hardly anyone talking about that aspect, the responsibility of government. Every right of government has a corresponding responsibility for government. Every right. So if you say um, <clears throat> that government has the right to lead and um, the subjects of government have the responsibility to submit and to obey, then government has the responsibility to lead well, to lead according to God's will and according to God's word. Okay? If you say that government has the right to use violence to enforce the law, then government has the responsibility to do so justly and not to use force to oppress and harm the innocent and the harmless. 
if government has the right to, to levy taxes, which that scripture says they do have, then they also have the responsibility to use those taxes justly. And you see that the passage doesn't only discuss the rights of government, but also the responsibilities. It's, it's both are implied. Um, and there's an approach to, uh, to leadership that the Bible assumes here. And that Jesus taught and that Paul is teaching as well. He doesn't come out and explicitly say it because he's not arguing for that kind of leadership. He's arguing from that view of leadership. And that view of leadership is what Jesus mentions in Mark chapter 10, verse 39 to 45. He talks about, um, you know, because what happened was, was James and John were saying, can we sit on your left hand and your right hand, you know, in your kingdom? And the other disciples heard about this and they were really angry, you know, because they wanted the position. And the other disciples were really upset and they were arguing about who's the greatest and all that nonsense. And then Jesus took them aside and said, listen, you guys, in the world, that is how leadership often works out. Now you have people lording it over others. They call themselves beneficiaries. They're saying, oh, we're leading for your benefit. But actually, they're just lording it over, and they're doing it for self-enrichment and self-promotion. In other words, they're leading. As leaders, they want something from their followers. They don't want something for their followers. And Jesus said, it must not be so amongst you. Whoever wants to be first among you must be last, and whoever wants to be the, the greatest amongst you must be the servant of all. In other words, servant leadership. And he says, because the Son of Man, I, Jesus, came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In other words, biblical leadership is characterized by service and sacrifice. Those who lead are assumed to be servants who are willing to sacrifice and who are willing to lead not for self-enrichment and for the benefit of themselves, but to lead selflessly and even sacrificially at the expense of themselves for the benefit of their people. Now that view of leadership is assumed here. And that's why Paul says they are servants of God for your good. It's assumed. He assumes that that, that is the view of leadership, uh, servant leadership. Jesus' view of leadership um, that, that government must follow. So the, the point here is that that govern, government has both rights and corresponding responsibilities. Um, and that means we as subjects, and especially us as Christians, have, have also, um, we, we, what we must respond, how we must respond is in terms of government's right to lead, to govern, we must submit to it. But according to gov- uh, with re- respect to government's responsibility to lead well, we must speak to government. So we must submit to government, but we must also speak to government. Submitting to government, I, I take um, as, as the, the priestly function, the pre- priestly ministry of the church as subjects. And that includes quite a few things. I mean, you can, always, you can think of quite, quite a lot of them. Firstly, praying. I mean, let me, let me just read you one scripture which, which actually... Um, puts that quite explicitly and, and quite clearly, and that's the, the well-known 1 Timothy, get there, 1 Timothy 2 from verse 1. It says, For first of all, then, I urge that supplication, 
Supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. It actually literally says all who are in authority, the same word used in Romans 13. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what Paul is saying here is, I, I want you to pray. One of our first priestly responsibilities towards government is to pray for government. Pray to government, um, especially kings and people in high places. Pray for them, and then he says, so that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life. So how, what do we need to pray for them in order that we can lead a peaceful and quiet life? Wisdom, Right? That they'll lead with wisdom. So we need to pray for government to lead with wisdom so that they can lead in such a way that the, the country prospers and that the people of the country prospers. But secondly, he says, um, for it's good in the sight of God, our Savior who desires all people to be saved. So the second thing we need to pray for leaders is that they'll be saved. So that's part of our priestly duty and our priestly ministry towards government is praying for government. How often do we do that? Our prophetic ministry is to remind government of its responsibilities, encourage government to, uh, f- to do its responsi- obey its responsibilities, and even <clears throat> challenge government when it doesn't come through on its responsibilities. But if we don't do the priestly duty of praying for government, then we limit the effect we can have, we actually disqualify ourselves from the prophetic ministry of challenging government. If we don't, um, if we don't actually do our priestly duty of praying for government, then we disqualify ourselves from our prophetic duty of speaking to government and challenging government. So you need both. You need both. You need to we need to, um, and, and I mean, the priestly duty includes stuff like paying taxes. It, it includes stuff like obeying and, and submitting and so on. Um, doing all the stuff to support government. But then there's also that, that prophetic one. Now, <clears throat> in the Bible, this is very clear. Think of all the prophets who spoke into government. Think of Joseph. Now, he's a good example of of both a a priestly and a prophetic uh, guy, but his function was quite strongly priestly because on the one hand, he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, but on the other hand, he also served under Pharaoh for the good of the nation and for for the good of the people. And that you can see as a priestly function. But then Moses, a couple of hundred years later, a bit more than 400 years later, focused on the prophetic function. And what did he say? He spoke to Pharaoh and his Egyptian government and he said, let my people go. And he actually not only uh, warned of the judgment of God, but actually brought the judgment of God on that government that was oppressing the people. So don't tell me that we as Christians should not challenge government. Think of other examples. Think of Daniel. How he served in government on the one hand, but also, I mean, in that, uh, that episode of where God wrote on the wall, he came and interpreted and he said, Dear king, you have been weighed and you've been found wanting and God's judgment is going to come on you. See, that's the prophetic ministry. On the one hand, the priestly ministry of serving in government and serving government and, and, and being a good subject, 
all the things that make one a good Christian also makes one a good citizen. Okay? The priestly function. But then we must, we have a responsibility and a duty to also speak and prophetically remind government of its responsibilities. Think of another one. Um, there was this prophet in the Old Testament, I think in Second Kings, called Micaiah. And uh, the two kings of, of the northern and the southern kingdom come together and they decide they're going to make war you know, against someone else. I can't even remember who it was. And, and, and this king of the north, it was a, I think, was it Ahab? I think it was Ahab. Yeah, it was Ahab. He, he had 400 prophets that, he, that were on his payroll. And he, and he asked them, he said, you know, shall we you know, inquire from the Lord? Shall we go out to war? And they said, yes, yes, go out to war and you will surely be victorious. And that's not the kind of prophetic ministry God expects of the church. The God, God expects the church not to be co-opted into government, to become dependent on government so it actually loses its prophetic voice. And the king of the south, um, I think it was Hezekiah, he said, mm, isn't there another prophet? You know, all these 400 prophets are on your payroll. Isn't there another prophet? And, the king, and king Ahab said, yeah, there's Micaiah, but he never prophesies any good, anything good concerning me, you know. <laughs> He said, okay, fine, I'll go and get him. And he, and he calls Micaiah and he sends for Micaiah. And you go and read this story. It's actually a very interesting story about how God uh, wants to judge King Ahab. And, and, and I think it's King Ahab, am I right? I didn't actually read the story in preparation. But I'm going from memory. But, um, you know, he comes and, and he sort of, he sort of um, sarcastically says, yeah, go into war, you know, by all means, you know. And, and really that was what God wanted King Ahab to do because he wanted to King Ahab to die as part of his judgment on him. And he said, No, 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 stop being sarcastic with me. You know, what, what's really going on? And he said, No, you know, you're going to be judged. Um, and, and here you have four prophets who have been bought by the state to actually rubber stamp the government versus one prophet who is faithful to God and actually speaks on behalf of God and challenges the government and speaks God's judgment over the government. You have Elijah speaking judgment over Ahab and Jezebel, saying there's going to, become a, there's going to be a drought. We are years. Um, and then again, after the time, saying, okay, now the drought's going to be broken. So there's this long... I mean, you have John, in the New Testament, you have John the Baptist. One of the, th- the thing that he was thrown in prison for was what? Prophesying to King Herod, to the governing authorities. He said, what you're doing is not right. You have taken your, your brother Philip's wife. That's adultery. It's wrong. And prophetically, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that what you're doing is wrong and God's judgment is going to come upon you. And he did that at all the prophets, in fact, did it at great cost to themselves. Whether it's Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, whoever, when they prophesied and, 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 and prophetically challenged government, they often got persecuted by government. But that doesn't mean we mustn't do it. So, we have a responsibility both to do a priestly and a prophetic ministry towards government. Does that, does that make sense? Can, can you see how you need the balance there? You cannot just focus on the, response, the rights of government and not the responsibilities, or only on the responsibilities of governments and not the rights. There's got to be a balance. You've got to, you've got to notice both of them and, and, and acknowledge both of them. Um, then secondly, let's talk about just the agents and the approach of government. You know... <laughs> Difficult as it may seem, according to this passage and other passages, the agents of government, of human government, are sovereignly appointed by God. 
That's what that passage in Romans 13 seems to say, right? God establishes and God appoints, right? It seems like God is sovereign in that passage. Now, I know the sovereignty of God is very difficult, you know. How does the sovereignty of God fit in with the, with the responsibility of man, you know? If God is sovereign, how can he still hold us responsible? And if we're responsible and have freedom of will, how can God be sovereign? Now, I'm not going to try and solve that problem for you because I, I don't think I can. But one thing I can say, it's, it's the same tension that you see between Scripture saying that God is three and God is one. How can God be three and one at the same time? And the problem is if you accept that the one and reject the other, you become a heretic. If you say God is three and not one, then you're a tritheist and you're a heretic. If you say God is one and not three and only the Father is God and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit are not God, then you're also a heretic. In other words, even if you cannot fully resolve the fact that God is three and one at the same time, Scripture clearly teaches both and you have to accept both as true, trusting that God will resolve them into a higher unity. Now it's the same with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Scripture clearly teaches both. And we might have trouble trying to reconcile them with one another and saying, how can God be sovereign and I be responsible and we be responsible at the same time? The fact is both are true. How they fit together, you know, with time we might discover that and one day in eternity we might understand that. But the fact is both are, are true. God sovereignly appoints government, but God also holds that government that he appointed responsible for its actions. That doesn't mean, just because God sovereignly appoints government, doesn't mean that government, any government can do whatever it wants to. Okay, Daniel 4 verse 32 says, um, and this is a repeated chorus in that chapter, if you want to go and read it, it's talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, God's judgment's going to come upon you, basically, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. God appoints. And God often uses his appointment of governing authorities either to bless people or to judge pe a people. You know, if, if God is merciful, we don't get the leaders we deserve. But when time comes for judgment, God gives us the leaders we deserve as judgment upon a nation. So, God sovereignly uh, if God sovereignly determines governments... In other words, God appoints the agents of government. Can you then say that God does not sovereignly appoint the approach to government? I just want to go back to, to that scripture in Romans um, 13 and just read uh, and, and highlight something for you. So let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Notice it's plural, governing authorities. For there is no authority, singular, except that which, is from, that which God has established. The authorities, plural, that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority, singular, is rebelling against God, what God has instituted. Notice that word, instituted. Okay, and then he says in verse 3, for the rulers, plural, hold no terror to those um, who do right. So, so he's jumping between authorities, plural, and authority, singular. And he's talking about authority that has been instituted by God. In other words, God does not only appoint the agents of go uh, as governing authorities. He also sovereignly appoints the approach to government. Government as a structure, as a system, as an approach, is God's institution. Think about that for a while. 
That means that Paul, when he wrote that in Romans 13, God had sovereignly appointed the Roman Empire and an emperor and kings under the emperor as the governing authority. And that government was abused. And God will hold those who abused that government responsible for that. But in our time, in South Africa, God has sovereignly appointed, instituted an approach to government called democracy. That was monarchy. But with us, God has appointed democracy. Now, what I see Christians often doing is not thinking about these things and trying to impose, without contextualizing, trying to impose what applies to monarchy in Paul's time directly to democracy in our time. Not taking into consideration that God has sovereignly changed the approach to government from monarchy to democracy. And that there are corresponding but slightly different responsibilities that we have towards government under those different approaches or institutions of government. Does, does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying that either monarchy or democracy is God's ideal for government. I'm going to talk about that uh, just now. Um, but we have to recognize that if God sovereignly appoints the agents of government, he also sovereignly appoints the approach to government. So God intended for us to live in a democracy with the rights and responsibilities that come, that come with that. Okay. So the difference between democracy and monarchy, let me just highlight two differences. The first difference is the level of participation. Monarchy, the king rules, and the king delegates his rule to officials who are under him. And there's very little participation in that rule by average people, except that they pay taxes, that's a form of participation in, in, in rule, um, and that they, to some extent, are responsible to maintain the law. So if you see someone stealing, even under a monarchy, you're supposed to stop them and enforce the law against stealing. You have a responsibility to do that. So, so there is some form of participation in government, even in a monarchy, by the subjects of the monarchy. But in a democracy, the level of participation in government is much higher. Not only are you supposed to support the government through taxes and stuff, and in help in the government to enforce the laws, you are even responsible, according to the laws, to help establish the laws. To vote for people who will represent you to help establish the laws and enforce the, uh, the laws. You know, to vote for, for government. Vote people into parliament, into uh, national assembly and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's why when, when they make a new law, they actually send out the gazette and they say, okay, we're going to make this new law. Here's the proposal that's on the table. The public must comment on it. You have a responsibility to comment and to participate, even in the making of the laws of your country. Do you realize that? And if God has sovereignly appointed us to be a democracy, then God expects you to take that responsibility seriously. Democracy is governing of the people, by the people, for the people. In other words, we participate in governance to a very high level. So the, the, the rights and the responsibilities of governing authorities applies to each one of us to some extent, in a democracy, because we are part of the government. That's the uniqueness of a, of a democratic system. 
Did you realize that? You are, in a sense, a governing authority. I bet you you didn't think about that, did you? Huh? I bet you you didn't realize that. Whether you're in parliament or not, as a citizen who votes and who can comment and participate through the legal structures of the democracy, you are part of the governing authority of this country. And you have a responsibility as such. I have a responsibility as such. Does that change your view of governing authorities a little bit? So, not only taxes we must vote for, we must speak to. Democracy expects, there are laws in democracy that create platforms and that expect, invite and expect their citizens to comment on the actions of governing authorities and to hold them accountable. Our responsibility to hold government, account- government accountable because we are part of government. And one of the ways of holding them accountable is by voting, but that's not the only way. By commenting on government, on laws that government is busy making, by writing to, to our representatives in government and, 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 and challenging them prophetically or encouraging them prophetically. You know, by doing all those kinds of things, we are actually holding our government responsible and we should hold our government responsible. By both the official dialogue uh, and debate in parliament, by us and by our representatives that we vote for and that we put into place, and the unofficial public discourse, the debate in, in, in the media and all of that, we are supposed to hold our government responsible. That's how the democracy works. That's, that's what the law expects of good citizens in a democracy. Um, and then also, I mean, to take it a step further, we, we're expected to be willing to serve in government. Now, this was true. Both, this is true both under a monarchy and under a democracy. Under mo- democracies, there's just a lot more freedom to this. But I, I mean, think of a monarchy, you can think of someone like Daniel who served in three empires, the, the Babylonian, the Persian, and the, what was the other one, the third one? I can't remember the third one, the Syrian Empire, I think. Um, so, so three empires came and, and went, and, and Daniel served under them, and under the kings of those empires, Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, etc. And he served both faithfully working for, but also prophetically challenging all those governments and setting an example in those governments. Uh, you think of Esther, who became queen of the pagan empire under King Artaxerxes, and how she served, and how she protected God's people. You think of William Wilberforce in the 1800s, and how he served in, as a Christian in, in the British Parliament and challenged the slave trade. And eventually, after... Decades, I think it was more than 20 years, and at great expense to himself and his own health, had the slave trade abolished, slavery abolished, by faithfully serving in the British Parliament. And thinking about it, I mean, mobilizing the church, getting the church involved, slavery was abolished primarily by the church. Did you know that uh, Tuli Madonsela, the public protector, is a committed Christian? I think she's in a, in a, in a um, Joshua generation, part of the Joshua generation movement. I'm not 100% sure, but I know she's a Christian. Do you know that uh, Mokhoeng, uh, the, the chief justice, is a committed Christian? 
where would South Africa, just in our current situation, where would South Africa have been if it were not for those two Christians serving in government? Those were two of the main people that God has now used to start holding the ANC government accountable for its actions. And it's interesting that almost everyone else was sort of thinking back and, and I mean, just imagine now all those um, ANC MPs, um, and they were forced, they were, they were compelled and coerced to support uh, President Jacob Zuma and say, no, but, you know, in Kandla, the 246 million spent there is not excessive. It's not, you know, excessive luxury, and, and he doesn't have to pay anything back. That's, that was what they were saying. And now President Zuma has himself turned around and admitted, no, well, actually, I, I should pay back some, some of the money, and I will. I intend to. Um, but none of them stood up and challenged him. Obviously, their jobs were on the line. They were like those, those 400 prophets that were on the payroll of the, of the government. And Tuli Maronsela was like Micaiah, standing up and saying, no, this is not right. And challenging, prophetically challenging government. And, and the two people who eventually played the biggest role in holding government accountable in our situation with two Christians, the public protector and the chief justice. We have a responsibility, brothers and sisters, to not... I mean, the whole thing of every member is a minister doesn't only apply in church. It applies in public life as well. We're supposed to go out and in public life and even in government, minister in a priestly way and in a prophetic way by serving, participating in government. Can you see that? I just want to try and get rid of so much of this fuzzy, superficial and you know, unbalanced, unbiblical thinking that we as Christians sometimes have. We have a responsibility towards government to support it and to honor it and respect it, but also to challenge it and to participate in it. Okay, so our attitude, what should our attitude be towards government? Now, on the one hand, um, the Bible has a very positive, like in scriptures like Romans 13 verse 1 to 7, a very positive, seemingly positive attitude towards government. And it says that our response should be positive. We should submit to government. We should honor and respect government, right? Here's just a question, just on a practical level. You might say, but, okay, that's all good and well. You know, I'm supposed to honor government. But how do I honor governing authorities and a government that is not honorable? How do I respect governing authorities and a government that is not respectable? How do I do that? Right? That's a good question. Now, just to help you, I think both honor and respect work on three levels. You can write this down. I, didn't, I don't think I put it up on the screen. On three levels. Firstly, you honor and respect the person. Secondly, you honor and respect the position. And thirdly, you honor and respect the performance. All three levels. There's a basic honor and respect that you give to every single human being just because they're a person, because they're human. A base level of honor and respect to all human beings, just because they're people. Human beings, right? We, we owe that to every human being. So there's an honor and respect that's to give, given to everyone just because they're people. Secondly, there's an honor and respect that goes to people because of the position they occupy, irrespective of their performance. So 
President Jacob Zuma is the president of South Africa, and as such, we must honor and respect his position. Right? Andres is the father of his household, the husband, and the father in his household, and that's a position, and his family have to honor and respect that position, even if he doesn't always get it right. Same with me, same with everyone. Um, me as pastor, that's a position. I'm going to make mistakes. But God expects members of the congregation to honor and respect me and the position I'm in, even when I do make mistakes. But then the third level is performance. Respect and honor based on performance. Now if people in authority and wise leaders quickly discover this, if you constantly pull rank and say, no, even though I'm making mistakes, you have no right to criticize and you must just submit and so on, no matter what I do, because I'm in the position. If you're always pulling rank and appealing to position only and never actually performing, when people become sick and tired of your leadership, they, lo- they lose respect for you and, and eventually you lose credibility and you become a poor leader. And eventually God removes you because God judges poor leaders. Right? You know, and, and, and you see that so often, you know, with parents trying to pull rank the whole time and say, just do it because I say so, and, and never actually explaining to their children why, and never actually setting a good example to their children that their children can follow. And those children grow up to be rebellious children and, and broken children often, and very confused and very hurt, and very disillusioned often with authority. So God expects those in leadership to not only receive honor and respect because of their person and because of their position, but also because of their performance. But God still expects us as followers to honor and respect people because of their position, even if their performance isn't right. But if their performance isn't right, God also expects us to prophetically challenge it. Um, and then the, but the Scripture also has quite a negative view of leadership, of human leadership. Just think about this. Um, in Deuteronomy, Moses says to the Israelites, now, if, if you get to your promised land and, and, and you want to um, appoint a king of you like the other nations have kings, you're welcome to do that. God permits that. But know this. The king you appoint will abuse his power. He will overtax you. He will take your sons and use them in his army as his soldiers. And he will take your daughters as his servants and even as his, his concubines. And he will take your lands and give it to his officials. Know that. <laughs> now it's the view that the Bible has of, of human leadership is, you know, human power is necessary, but it will be abused. I mean, if you t- take books like Judges, the refrain of the book of Judges is that everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. In other words, there was lawlessness. So it implies that... There should be a king. There should be human government on the one hand. But on the other hand, the the, the Bible is not naive. It recognizes that because human beings are fallen, they will inevitably abuse their power that is given to them. The power that they're supposed to use for good, they will use for evil. The power that they're supposed to use to serve others, they will use to enrich themselves and promote themselves. The Bible is not naive about that. You know, if you look at, at, at the old king of uh, the, the issue of the kingship, like I said in, in, Deutero- in, in Judges, it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, there was lawlessness because there was no king. So it's necessary that there be a king, it says on the one hand. On the other hand, it says 
you know, explicitly that the king will abuse his power. And it shows through the history of Israel that the king does abuse his power. Whether it's David or Solomon, both of them abuse their power. And if you go, when the kingdom split into the northern and southern kingdoms, there were 20 kingdom, kings in the north, 20 kings in the south, and the vast majority of them were pathetic kings who abused their, 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 their authority terribly, who completely misrepresented God and oppressed the people. I mean, there were a handful, maybe five or so out of 40, who actually were decent kings. So on the one hand, you know, the Bible presents there being a king as, as sort of a necessity for human society and just, you know, to prevent lawlessness. On the other hand, you know, it's, it's very almost disillusioned and say, so but you will be disappointed with the human king. He will abuse his power. He will mess up. So how do you reconcile? You know? And then there's the other strand where, where in, in Deuteronomy 33, it says that Yahweh became the king of Israel. In other words, God's ideal for Israel all along was a theocracy. And the Israelites, you know, even the Pharisees in Jesus' day were saying stuff like, no king but God. God alone is king. And we don't want to submit to, to, to Caesar. God alone is king. So how do you reconcile there must be a human king with God alone is king? And this tension, this both positive and negative view of the kingship throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. How do you reconcile them? They're perfectly reconciled in the person of Jesus Christ. Where God alone becomes king, but he becomes a human king. And he becomes a perfect king who will not abuse his authority. And what we need to realize is not only that we must minister in a priestly and prophetic way to, to to uh, government, and not only that we must participate in government, but we must anticipate the ultimate rule that any human, imperfect, fallen human government points to, and that's the rule of Jesus Christ. That is the government we long for, and which we will not have this side of eternity. We will not have it. Government this side of eternity will always be a disillusionment and a disappointment to us. And it will always work in us the longing for a better government. A better government. And um, in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44, Daniel interprets the, the vision. And he says that the kingdom of God will break loose and it will crush all the other kingdoms, all the other governments, until only it remains, until only God's kingdom remains, until that's the only government, the only rule on earth. In Revelations, I think it's chapter 11, I think verse 15, it says, And the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. In other words, God's ultimate goal is that he himself will rule through the human Messiah, who is God and who is perfect. And God designed human governments to be imperfect. God sovereignly appoints imperfect human governments during this dispensation, so that we'll be disappointed and so that we'll have that longing for a perfect government, for perfect justice, for perfect rulership, which only God can give. So we must be realistic as Christians and, and realize that what we're longing for in government, we will not find in earthly governments. We will find it only in Jesus. Only in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, before whom every knee will bow and to whom every tongue will confess eventually that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so in closing, Christians should relate to government in a priestly and a prophetic um, service, but then also 
in faithful participation because God has sovereignly appointed us to live in a democracy and we have a responsibility as such to participate in government. But then also to have a hopeful anticipation of the ultimate government of which every earthly government at, the, at this time is only a pale reflection. Does that help you to see how to relate to government a bit better as, as a Christian? Now obviously we have at least a responsibility in South Africa to vote. So next weekend, 9 and 10 April, if you have not yet registered to vote, vote. Register and vote. And, and use your vote. Use your vote to keep government accountable. The reality is our current government is messing up. And we have to hold them accountable. And one of the, one of the main ways we can hold them accountable is at the ballot box. By voting. Um, but I want to ask you, and I want you to actually discuss this. Apart from registering and voting, what else can, can and should we as Christians do according to Scripture uh, regarding government? So take a few minutes, take three or so minutes and quickly discuss it. What can you do and what should you do? In your, in your discussion, just make sure that you get the whole balance thing right. You know, um, on the one hand, um, we should both pray for and encourage government. But on the other hand, we must also challenge government. And, and just by the way, is there, is there a place for civil disobedience in Christianity? You know what civil disobedience is? Is there a place for that? Think of the, the midwives who were commanded by Pharaoh to, to kill the, the Jewish kids, boys, in, in the time of Moses. And they practiced civil disobedience and didn't, and they were commended for it. Okay? Think about Peter and John, who are in Acts 5, commanded by the Sanhedrin, the highest law in, in Judaism, not to preach in the name of Jesus. And what do they say? Whether it is right to obey man or to obey God, you decide. So in other words, when, when man's law contradicts God's law, the Bible consistently teaches that God's law comes first. Right? I mean, there's no doubt about that. So if a doctor you know, is commanded by law to do an abortion, but God says, I've known you by name, you know, and I created you in your mother's womb, you're a human being even before you're born, and you shall not kill any human being, any innocent human being, then what must the doctor do? He must obey God's law, right? Even if it means civil disobedience. Okay? So, but, but get the balance right. You know, you, you cannot, you cannot, if you're not praying for government, God's not going to give you a platform to prophesy to government. But just bear that in mind. So, so continue discussing it. And what I want you to do is when you finish discussing it, I want you to actually pray in your groups. I want you to actually pray for government. Pray for South Africa as a nation and pray for our government and do it in the light of, of the communion we're going to have together and break bread around that. Okay?